I mean, early on, I was really focused on the materialistic aspect of wealth accumulation. And I was really focused on being wealthy. I think a lot of times it's easy to get fixated on the numbers, but I think the main thing is to keep your priorities in line. And for me, that is faith, family, and then career. And many times throughout my journey, those things have gotten out of out of order and careers jump to the head of that list. And I regret that. And I want to make sure that I don't do that anymore. And I would recommend that if you're focused on your benchmarks and you have your goals, you're going to hit them. You don't need to do it necessarily as fast as you might have in mind. And I think that slow and steady generally wins the race of life. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 242. This week we have Seth. He has a net worth of $1.1 million, split between some rentals and other asset classes. Probably one of the youngest millionaires, if not the youngest millionaire that we have had on the show. So definitely looking forward to the interview with Seth. Last week we had Adam. He's a former accountant, financial advisor, and business owner. He has a net worth of $4.3 million, split between business, market, and real estate. Very similar to the guest we have this week with Seth. Uh, he's He's got a, quite the diversification. We had a great conversation with Seth this week. He had some large, ambitious goals uh, to get to a $20 million net worth and all sorts of passive income and then has kind of retracted some of that and then focused more on what's enough. And so we get into a great conversation with him uh, about the journey that he's had from his goal setting to becoming a millionaire and and now what his outlook looks like uh, going forward. So without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Seth. Seth, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Absolutely. Uh, just a quick overview of my background. I'm from a small town in western Pennsylvania. Grew up in a relatively, um, I guess you could call it lower middle class environment, uh, very low financial literacy. Joined the military out of high school, was a, a, a fairly poor high school student, and after the military, became a real estate agent, found my way into banking. I'm currently a mortgage broker. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Right now, just under 1.2 or around 1.19. Nice. Coming to do your million dollar holla. So, how is the 1.2 broken up? Largely held in single family residential real estate. Approximately 790,000 is in residential real estate. 85,000 of that being my primary residence. And then Otherwise, I have approximately 180000 in real estate investment trusts, about half private, half publicly traded, about 90000 in um, index funds, uh, 90% of which is stocks, about 10% bonds, that's international and U.S.-based, and about 50000 in a 401k, and about 50000 in a single-family residential note. Okay, so you got quite the diversification. How did how did this strategy come about with where you've got things spread amongst so many different vehicles and accounts and, and you know, between bonds and stocks and everything else? Well, early on, as I mentioned, 
I was a real estate agent first, and I became a real estate agent out of the military really because I was so focused on real estate as an asset class. Rich Dad, Poor Dad was one of the first books that I read, and I had read Gary Keller's uh, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And that's what's really what really inspired me to get into real estate in the first place. So I was 100% real estate early on, and really, I had the, the mindset of I want to have a lot of single-family residential properties, have a, a really high, I guess, I, my goal initially was 100 doors, 240000 in passive income. But over time, once I hit about 600000 in net worth, uh, and this is just through ongoing sort of education in, in the personal finance space, I decided that that was not necessarily a goal that was any longer interesting. And I really began to look into other ways to diversify. And while I still love real estate as an asset class and believe in it, um, my, my long-term goals have really changed in terms of the way that I want to construct a portfolio. And I want it to be a, a much more balanced, much more diversified portfolio. So has being a mortgage broker played a factor in some of the things that you've purchased and in, in, in hold your wealth? Real estate, being a real estate broker has been an asset in terms of being an income driver. But in terms of my property acquisitions, I, I actually acquired all but one of my properties prior to becoming a mortgage broker. So with that being said, that was sort of really that's only been over the past four and a half years. So, I mean, in terms of income generation, that's really built out the wealth. But the short answer is on the, in, in terms of it getting me an edge on deals, no, not necessarily. But I do have only two mortgages. I have six properties, two mortgages. And those two mortgages are both 2.25% interest on a 30 year note. So, I mean, that's probably the distinct advantage of being in real estate finance. Yeah, totally. So, why are the other ones paid off? I've always been extremely conservative. Um, me being conservative is, is probably the primary reason for the diversification and me sort of shifting my game plan a little bit. But my goal was always to have paid off real estate. I, I don't necessarily believe, and it, it, this is ironic because of my profession, but I don't necessarily believe in being highly leveraged. I don't believe in having a lot of debt. And I've always had the goal of, of being debt free eventually. So long story short, I, to answer your question, I would rather have six paid off properties than 20 highly leveraged properties, which is going to generate roughly the, sh the same cash flow. So in terms of cash flow right now, Seth, where are you at? How much do those six properties, two mortgages, so four are paid off? What's your cash flow there monthly? On a monthly basis, it's a, just below four grand. So on an annual basis, it's about 38000 annually in cash flow. That's great. And it's all single family, you said? Yes, all single family, sewer condos, but essentially it's all single family residential. And around where you live or different locations? Five properties in the Central Florida location, one property being located in South Carolina. And did you just start acquiring them one by one, like one every couple of years, or how'd you do it? So... Whenever I actually moved down to Florida with my wife, and my wife's been instrumental in this process too. She's sort of been a rock. She's a teacher, and that's a separate conversation, but we always sort of lived on her income. But when we moved down to Florida, essentially we moved down because my in-laws were retiring in Florida, and it was early in our career. We were sort of making a shift, 
And they sort of threw it out there one time where, you know, if we wanted to do some house sitting, we could sort of scout the area and and understand Central Florida prior to moving. So we, we took them up on that offer. I sort of reset my career. It was still in the early phases. We moved down. And our first property was a property that we saved up because basically we're, we were saving rent. We had about 20000 in cash in the bank at that point. And I purchased a, or I should say, my wife and I purchased a $52,000 single family residence in the heart of Daytona Beach. And it generated roughly $900 a month in rent. Needed little to no work. It, those deals just don't exist anymore. How did you find all of these? Every property, well, I shouldn't say every property, nearly, and there was some buying and selling. So I'm at six properties now. There's been some turnover. I've, I've top graded a little bit along the way, but almost every property was listed on the MLS. And there were a few that through sort of prospecting and through my network, I was introduced um, on a for sale by owner basis. And so you can tell a difference now when you're looking at properties versus when you bought these over the last, I don't know how long, five years or so? Yeah, first property purchase was in 2014. Okay, so seven years. So you can tell a difference in, in what you're able to get and how much a property cash flows. Pricing's gone up, obviously. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's gone up tremendously. Uh, I mean, that first property that I gave as an example, that was in part of Daytona Beach, 52000 We ended up selling it maybe a year and a half, two years ago for about 120000 Um And we sort of, we did that a couple times with similar properties to sort of top grade from what you might consider like a D, maybe an A minus B area. So, I mean, right now, it's frankly, I, I'm in the market. I, I view properties every day, but I've pretty much, I made an offer on a property probably about four months ago. And from there, I just said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to focus on diversification from now. I, it's really tough um, with price to rent ratios to justify buying in the current market. And there's going to be a lot of real estate investors that argue with that. But for me, I mean, I'm just going to focus on diversification until I see opportunity for better deals. Yeah. And you're managing these all yourself? No, actually. And never have I managed them myself. From the very beginning, I, I had a property management. I have property management in place in both South Carolina and Central Florida. The goal has always been completely passive. Gotcha, gotcha. So I hear 52,000 in a DC area in Central Florida, and that to me seems like a headache, is it not? The first, yes. I mean, I have some crazy stories from the first couple properties just from visiting it. Um, but I had a hostage situation in one of my Daytona properties. I had a, a shootout. Um, I had a, a raid, and I was chased by a pit bull. Um, in <laughs> In, in a couple of these, a couple of the early ones, I heard, I learned a couple of really hard lessons. But then you, then you, what, two and a half times your money when you sold it? Yeah, yeah, no, they were they the return on those. Whenever I look at the math, was ridiculous because if we got in, we got into the property essentially all in cash out of pocket for about fifteen grand on my first two properties each, so thirty grand total, and they cash flowed two hundred dollars plus a month. So I mean right there you're looking at like a twenty percent return just cash cash on cash and then the appreciation, the debt pay down over time. I mean the right. the returns were were enormous on those first couple properties. So did you pay cash for that first deal, fifty three? 
No, no. I, I So going back, as I mentioned, I had roughly 20 grand in the bank for the first deal back in 2014. And basically we put 15,000 down um, on a $52,000 property and financed the rest. This was when it was, I mean, lenders weren't struggling in 2014, but it was the market in central Florida was not fully out of, uh, out of the pit. So, you know, there were a lot of lenders still dealing with those really low loans. It wasn't as hard as it is now. And it, but it was, it was a little bit more, it was a little harder to get one than in 2008, right? When that pit bull that was chasing, you could have got that loan probably. Right, right. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was a l- much tougher to qualify. We, we never had any trouble qualifying though. It, but what I guess what I was trying to say is there were more lenders out there that were willing to lend really low amounts back then. Gotcha. Whereas now the volume like, wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I got gotcha. you. So having purchased these homes or condos in D and C class areas versus A and B class areas, what's your advice? Would you start with D and C? Is it worth the time and effort or would you have just gone straight to the A and B if you could do this again or when you buy homes in the future? Well, I know for myself, buying homes in the future, I will never buy a anything less than a, a B minus property. And for a few reasons, at this stage, I'm more focused on a balance between appreciation and cash flow than I am pure cash flow. And I think that's a really specific question to whoever the investors, whoever the investor is and what their circumstance is. But early on, I was making you know, pretty, I I was making below average income. I was making like 40 grand a year. My wife was making 40 grand a year. And we had a, we always kept a a good savings rate. Our savings rates always been 50% or higher. But with that being said, I was focused on cash flow because I didn't want anything to go wrong. And those early properties, as tough as they were, I did have great cash flow. And I think that if somebody's relatively strapped in terms of, and not to say that we were strapped, we were very fortunate back then. I view it sort of as strapped. If you're focused on earlier in your investing career, I think those are great experience builders. And I think that it really sort of cuts your teeth for your investing career. So, Seth, as you've gone through this journey, you've obviously built out quite the portfolio in real estate. You've got awesome diversification in the market, all sorts of exposure across all different types of vehicles. As as you go forward in the future, you know, you're pretty young right now. How do you think about, you know, let's just say Seth earns his next dollars and the next dollars are going to get put towards investments. How do you kind of allocate that going forward? And what does that look like as you continue to build your portfolio? So I, I sort of view the journey, the wealth building journey in really three phases. The beginning phase, I was far more um, inclined to take on leverage. And really, I, I didn't realize sort of how quickly the net worth was growing until it was around three to 400000 and it was a lot of it was due to fortunate circumstances. You know, I, there was a lot of you know I don't want to downplay my role in it, but you know, luck is definitely a factor, and I feel like I have been very blessed. But I was far more apt to take on leverage. I was far more likely to take on a lot of risk, and I was also risking just being solely focused on the real estate on real estate as an asset class. Whereas once I got to around five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand in net worth, I sort of felt a transition to what I perceive to be the second phase, which I consider myself still in, which is sort of the diversification and the stabilization phase, where I realized that I wanted to to build a portfolio that was more responsible, 
that was going to weather markets and market cycles better. And Frank was going to outperform because real estate is a great asset class, but just having additional uh, diversification, uh, I feel is the right choice for me and for most people. And then that third phase, I view it sort of as the growth phase. The entire way, my, I'm not the active investor that's going to be really hands-on. The goal has always been to have a completely passive portfolio. So for me, you know, it's always going to be indexes. I don't do any individual stock picking or anything like that. But I, I view the next phase after I hit sort of my next target, which I would say is in the ballpark of around $2 million. There's some flexibility there because I'm focused on some some cash flow things as well as just the net worth number. But at, once I hit approximately that number and sort of hit a few metrics that I'm paying attention to, then I will probably just go straight into equity indexes and just allow that to sort of carry forward for the rest of my investing career. So at this point going forward, you're in terms of kind of this growth going from one to two million, are you primarily putting all your dollars now towards those index funds? Uh, primarily, uh, but I am also heavily investing still in REITs. And part of the the mindset behind why I'm investing the way that I am is that I I want my passive income to hit right around my annual budget, and not just my annual budget, but sort of my anticipated end line annual budget, which is you know the end game annual budget somewhere in the ballpark of eighty thousand annually. So I want to hit roughly eighty thousand in passive income, and then just stop investing in REITs and you know, other types of investments altogether and just focus on growth at that point for tax efficiency and in performance. And I hope that answers the question. Yeah. So as I'm thinking about this and, and hearing you describe this, so going forward, you're essentially going to take the, the four or five grand you get from your rentals, and then you're going to take another four grand, four or five grand potentially from your index fund balance or portfolio. Is, is, it, is that accurate? What, so... To, to get to your 80 grand? So to build it out, basically I'm going to optimize the six rentals that I have. So that will make up approximately 45,000 of that 80. Then there will be approximately 500,000 to 600,000 in REITs. So that will make up approximately that 30. I'm not counting any dividend income from the growth stocks or anything further or any other types of other income, that will be sort of like my income allocation. And then the rest is going to be essentially 90% stock, 10% bond indexes, and and that'll just grow. I don't really ever anticipate on doing a drawdown for income purposes and sustenance purposes. Um, Eventually, really the goal is after a certain age point and really the entire way along the way, I want to make sure that I'm able to give and, and contribute in a, a meaningful way. Makes sense. So do you plan on retiring early then? Not necessarily. No. Um, I do you're you're going to hit this 2 million years. in like two years, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. So really for me, it's more about career transition than retirement. And where I'm at, I mean, I have a really demanding career in terms of the amount of time that I need to sort of be on and be present for my work. And that's never really been the goal. This has sort of been the vehicle that's taking taking me to the goal. And I mean, really, the career transition that I see taking place and 
I'm, you know, praying about it. I, I don't know for sure exactly what that career transition is going to be, but right now it feels like it's probably going to be teaching or something similar to teaching, whether that's middle school or whether that's, you know, teaching personal finance or something, something in that realm is really the next phase of my career. And then that career I see being a career that I carry sort of into the traditional retirement age. So Seth, being such a young millionaire, I've got to ask, what do you think has been key in, in allowing you to achieve, you know, millionaire status at such a young age? Well, I mean, for me, the mindset is definitely a big part of it. My mindset has changed a lot, you know, over the past 10 years. Um, but mindset, you know, work ethic and savings rate and support, I would say are the four things that come, they come to mind. And then I also have to add in that, you know, it would be arrogant to and foolish to not, you know, sort of say privilege in there as well. You know, just being in the United States of America, for one, you know, you're going to be affluent relative to the world standards. So I, I would say those five things. Yeah. So mindset, what does that mean? Well, so just to go back a ways, I mean, I mentioned in the intro that I was born or I was sort of raised in a lower middle income house. I, I grew up around really fine. Nobody understood finances in sort of between my parents. And for me, I don't, for whatever reason, my dad, who was not very financially literate, was actually a, a pretty poor example of how to handle your finances. It sort of motivated me to be the opposite. But whenever I was 12, he gave me the book, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And even back then, I was an avid reader. But up until I got the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I was sort of a reader of fiction. Um, once I got that book, I actually don't know if I've read, I'm maybe read a, a handful of fiction books since, but I've pretty much been a nonfiction reader. And, you know, I've really just steadily since really even being 12, I got my first job at 12. I, so really I'm, I'm young by traditional standards, but I've been working for about 20 years. From then on, I just sort of continued to learn and, and focus on my goals. And early on, my goals were, as I mentioned, you know, I wanted 100 units. I wanted 240 annually in passive income. I wanted an eventual net worth of 20 million. And that was sort of really what I was focused on. And it was really all about the financial targets and all about the sort of materialistic, I would say, immature goals. And then as I got married and had a daughter and grew in my faith, I, I realized that that's not really what I was sort of focused on. But I learned enough along the way to, to understand how to build wealth and really that anything that you really set your mind to, you can accomplish. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So as you as he gave you that book, you said you were 12 years old when you received Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yes, yes. So is that how the interest in money started or where did you, I mean, I think, I don't know which way it goes more often if someone comes from a family that has, I guess, bad financial habits, we could say either they do the same thing or they want to get out. It's probably split. But I mean, was there a turning point or how did you take it? Are your siblings the same way? Did did they want to do this, make the same good decisions, I guess? That's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about it as much with my siblings. So just real quick, I, I have four siblings. I'm the oldest. And I was, I'm the only sibling though of my two parents. i between um, my parents, there were a few divorces. Um, I, I was a high school baby, and my, my parents 
got remarried and, and divorced again fairly early. And I would say that there was a lot of financial struggles, a lot of trouble with debt that I witnessed. And, and getting my first job at 12 was actually after my, in God bless her, but my mother's second divorce. I It was more out of necessity to sort of support myself and help around the house than anything else. And I just, I guess that sort of planted a seed in me that I never wanted to experience. I never wanted to experience that kind of financial hardship again. And I never wanted my, my future family, the family that I have currently to deal with that kind of experience financially. So I think that's where it sort of came from. Yeah. Well, good for you. And congrats, obviously, on the success, especially at, at such a young age here. So. In the intro, or before we started recording, when we were talking, you mentioned stewardship and how that's an, an important piece to you of the puzzle and being a good steward. Let's talk a little bit about what that means to you to, to be a good steward. Well, I, I, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Honestly, I'm, you know, regardless of your faith, I think there's a, a lot of different perspectives. And I think that one perspective that sort of pervades the, per, the personal finance community um, is one of ownership and entitlement and materialism to an extent. You know, I think a lot of the reasons for the desire to have wealth stem around the things that people want. And, you know, along, and this was a, I'm still growing through this and I'm still dealing with some of this stuff. And, but I guess to answer your question, stewardship for me, it was sort of coming to the understanding that the resources that I have and the home that I live in, everything that you know, the income that I make, it none of it belongs to me. And I'm really a manager for God, and it, that's my faith, and that I need to be responsible with my resources, essentially, because it doesn't belong to me, and, and I, it's it's another role. So I, I view my role as a steward um, very seriously. So I want to be responsible not just for my family, um, but also others and the causes that I support. And I I hope that answers the question. No, it's good. So I guess the follow-up then would be is how do you decide which causes to support and, and how much to give to each? Because I think we've asked this a few times on the show, but there's so many places you can give and so much help, whether it's in your family, extended family or communities or country. I mean, so many different things you could contribute to both dollars and time. How do you decide where to allocate your resources, both time and money? That's something I'm still working through. But what I, where I'm at right now mentally is I have more financial resources than I do time. That won't always be the case. You know, as I mentioned, whenever I have a career transition, I, I anticipate having more time to, to give more through my time than I presently do. But in terms of the financial side of things, and again, this is something that I've grown through and am still growing through, but I mean, for me, prayer first. Um, and then also it depends on, you know, everybody has the authorities that they turn to. Some people will reference different books that are sort of their guidebook. But ultimately, for me, it's the Bible. And if I'm looking, if I'm really torn about something, I'll turn to the Bible and not just the Bible sometimes, because sometimes it's really hard to interpret certain passages. But then also, you know, different different sort of authorities on the Bible or in different perspectives, different pastors, that type of thing to see what they have to say about different passages. And for me, I mean, where where I'm sort of at currently is, you know, 10% to the local church. And it's not necessarily percentage-based, but more needs-based to 
causes like Compassion International, and then I'm also uh, a founding board member for a, a an organization called No Longer Fatherless, which is a mentoring organization very similar to that of like the Boys and Girls Club or Big Brother Big Sister. Awesome, awesome. Well, good for you. So let me just go back. You mentioned to Jace that the goal is eighty thousand in passive income, correct? Mm-hmm. So yes, you're roughly. At, you're at thirty six. You said right, thirty five forty ish, right there. You have a hundred thousand dollars in cash. Do you say, gee, why don't I just go buy three, four more of these rentals and get to the eighty? No, no, I don't. I, I mean, originally that was my goal, but I don't anymore because I don't necessarily believe. I think that the leverage part of my process and the cash flow part of my process with physical real estate is about done. You know, I've, I started to acquire more. I had eight properties and I was planning to get to 10 and then sort of see how it felt. But I realized that I just, I preferred the simpler approach. And I also, again, want to balance cash flow and appreciation. And also cash flow and, and diversity diversification with other asset classes. So for me, moving forward, while I could go out and get that 80000 with just physical real estate, and it's actually my area of expertise, so I, I'd be able to do it fairly easily. I, I'm sort of taking what I perceive to be the slow and steady approach and get there by sort of following the plan that I, I really thoughtfully sort of put together about building that out through REITs, which are completely passive, um, both private and publicly traded, and then just allowing the the other stuff to grow the net worth. And I think that over time, that'll be a, viewed as a wise decision in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. Savings rate you mentioned, what has been your savings rate? What percent of your, let's call it gross, are you saving? So I've we've always had a 50% savings rate or greater. When my wife and I got together, um, we pretty much combined finances even before we got married. And we were in a position where she was a an elementary school teacher and I was a real estate agent. And we actually at that point in time had comparable incomes, but mine was far more volatile. So we lived off of hers and invested and gave mine. And early on, I will admit the giving was not where it should have been, but that's how we started. So it was 50%. And from there, it's only increased. I, we really kept her salary as the guy the entire time, even through present day. She's now an assistant principal. She makes slightly more money, but my salary is still, and I made $330,000 last year. That is nearly entirely gone to investments and giving. Wow. Wow. Good for you. I'm sorry. I was going to say, so it sort of topped out at around 87% um, for a savings rate, but that was, at the peak. 87% of your gross income, so pre-taxes? Uh, pre-taxes, yes. Uh, post-taxes, it would have been a, a lower savings rate, but that was at the highest. That was whenever um, you combine, and my wife now has done also, She's and this is fortunate, it's recent, but she's done some social media consulting. It's not going to be a long-term thing, but it's something she's doing right now. So our combined income was roughly 440000 and our the living expenses that we had, and this was, we've raised our living expenses since, but at the time was roughly 48000 So wait, so let me just make sure I understand. So 440, you were saving 380000 Yes. Pre, well, that's pre-tax. 
So you take taxes out of there. That takes a big chunk. Um, I got so you. The, I got you. Okay. The true savings rate was was less, but yeah. I got you. Okay. So that yeah, you're living off of forty fifty. Then you paid taxes and you took the rest. You kept you saved or invested the rest. Exactly. Okay. okay. So let me jump into some rapid fire questions here, Seth, and then we'll end with some some words of advice. So you just mentioned spending. It's about what is it now? Sixty thousand or so a year. Fif- roughly fifty eight thousand dollars currently okay and we talked about this a little bit but income what's been your range of household income so the last year was one of our best years that was the four hundred and forty thousand. um it's sort of been a hockey stick curve though the early on it was really hers has been consistent i mean she's ranged from thirty six thousand to fifty nine thousand mine has been Fairly consistent, but it's sort of hockey stick. So uh, my income ranged from forty thousand, and really stayed that way, increasing slightly until I was about twenty six. Twenty six, I made about sixty thousand. Twenty seven, made about seventy five thousand, and then hit six figures, and then sort of hit you know one ninety, like two twenty five, three thirty. It's really climbed. Wow. I mean, Good Thank you. you. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to ask you a few others, but I'm going to mix it up here. So how many hours a week do you work? Currently, and this is something that I'm sort of actively in the process of dialing back. I have an assistant who's actually my brother. Well, that's been, that's a different conversation, a different story, but it's a blessing. Very excited. That's one of the reasons why I opened up my own mortgage office. But I'm in the process of dialing it back a little. I'm currently around 55. At my peak, I was easily working 80 hours plus a week. Okay. How many hours of TV do you watch a week? I would say probably probably three hours. Okay. How many books do you read a year? I would say I probably average about a book a week, so probably in the ballpark of you know 52 books, maybe 50 books a year. That's a lot. That's reading or audio? No, it's, it's all reading. I actually get sort of frustrated. It's a pet peeve of mine when people say they read something and they listen to a 15-minute clip or they uh, – right. anyway, that's that's my own personal pet peeve. But no, I do a lot of reading. I, that's something that – that was a hobby I got into as a kid. And I, a lot of people sort of ask, you know, how do you do the reading? And for me, I think the big difference that I hear when people ask it is they're asking it as if it's additional work, thing I'm I'm trying to do. It's been the way that I relax and something that I do. To, I really enjoy it. Okay. So what books do you recommend? Well, I mean, I have a little bit of recency bias because I'm thinking of the books that I've read recently. But in in general, I mean, one that I would recommend right now is, is Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Yeah, that's somebody who really wants to be challenged and, and is faithful, um, but also takes finances very seriously. I mean, one of the early books, that was really influential in the mindset piece of my journey was thinking grow rich. I mean, you're going to hear that a lot. Really, really recommend that. There's a few books that really changed my perspective as you go from, you know, rich dad, poor dad, and then you read something like Vicki Robbins. I'm trying to remember the name of it right now, but the, the the concept of her book, and forgive me, I can't remember the title off the top of my head is the concept of enough. And it's a well-known personal finance book. I, the name's escaping me. Um, yeah. How many how many times do you exercise a week? Six. Really? I, I get up 
Yeah, I get up at 5.15 every day, and I work out for about a half an hour, five days a week. And then on Saturday mornings, I I go for a run or a, a, run or a, a long hike. Awesome. So just in closing here, Seth, what have been some of the mistakes you've made, and what advice would you give to somebody? So in terms of mistakes that I made, I mean, big picture, I think that it was early on focusing on the wrong things and putting putting my, I guess, having my priorities out of line. And it, that ties right into the advice. I mean, early on, I was really focused on the materialistic aspect of wealth accumulation. And I was really focused on being wealthy to have excess and to sort of live the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. And now I, I think about that and it's uh, it's something that I would never want. And in terms of recommending things, I would say that, especially if you're sort of getting to that million, I think a lot of times it's easy to get fixated on the numbers. But I think the main thing is to keep your priorities in line. And for me, that is faith, family, and then career. And many times throughout my journey, those things have gotten out of out of order and careers jump to the head of that list. And I regret that. And I want to make sure that I don't do that anymore. And I would recommend that, you know, whatever, if you're focused on your benchmarks and you have your goals, you're going to hit them. You don't need to do it necessarily as fast as you might have in mind. And I think that slow and steady generally um, wins the race of life. Well, thanks so much, Seth. Everybody, that's Seth, net worth of just over 1.1 million young millionaire, right? So thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Humble to be here. Thanks, Seth. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.